Hi, and welcome back to Reflect Forward. I'm your host, Carrie Siggins, and I hope you're having a great day today. Today, my guest is Gina Schaefer. She is the founder and co-CEO of a chain of Ace Hardware stores located in Washington, D.C., Baltimore, Maryland, Montgomery County, and Northern Virginia. She is an incredibly passionate entrepreneur who grew her company from one to 13 stores in 14 years and now leads a multi-million dollar business that employs more than 300 people. She is dedicated to maintaining a strong corporate culture, just like me, that's why we hit it off, and is selling her company to her teammates through an ESOP, which is also what Stone Age is. It's an employee stock ownership program, and it's a way to transition ownership to employees. One of the things I love about Gina is that she invests in people who are in recovery and people who are coming out of the prison system. And she tells this amazing story of hiring her first convict and not knowing it and how he spent 10 years helping her grow her businesses. And it's such an amazing story. In fact, she and her husband and their hardware stores became known as Recovery Hardware instead of Ace Hardware because of their commitment to helping people who are in the recovery journey. And she wrote a book, which was published in 2022, called Recovery Hardware, and it chronicles her business growth and the lessons she learned from hiring folks in recovery. I know you are going to love this interview. She is an amazing person, such a great story. So hang tight and I'll be right back with Gina. All right, everyone. I am back with Gina Schaefer. I'm so glad you were on the show today. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. All right. So you own 13 Ace Hardware stores, and I would love for you to give us a little bit of the backstory. How did all of that come to be? Uh, so I live in a neighborhood called Logan Circle that was um, destroyed by the riots when Martin Luther King was assassinated. And essentially, when that happened, the riots swept down 14th Street, where my office is, and destroyed the businesses and everybody left. Um, people moved out, the businesses closed, everything became boarded up essentially. And in the mid nineties, people started moving back to this neighborhood because they wanted a cheaper place to live. DC was starting to get very expensive at the time. They were moving East. They found this neighborhood that had tons of potential. And all of that coincided with me getting laid off for like, I don't know, the third or fourth time, Carrie. I was a tech reject. This was the boom and bust of the tech industry in the mid nineties. I needed a cheap place to live. I wanted to buy a place for whatever reason, and I needed a job. And so those worlds all collided when a real estate agent said, you have to buy in Logan Circle. It's the only place you can afford. And I said, oh, I think this community could really use a hardware store. Perfect. So I did. I opened a hardware store. So you went from software to hardware, but just a different kind of hardware. <laughs> exactly. That's in bolts. Very practical. I like the practical aspect of it. Where did that come from? Like, I mean, had you thought about owning a hardware store or what? Like, it, it just does it just really come out of like the blue? No, it wasn't. It wasn't technically out of the blue. So there was a really strong community association at the time. And the, the, the community association had a couple uh, purposes. One, to all these new community members so we could get to know each other. And two, to talk about services that the, the community needed. Everybody in the community wanted to walk and dine and shop and recreate right outside of our front door. And we wanted the basic services that any neighborhood has. And at the top of every list was a, a pharmacy, a grocery store, and a hardware store. And so I, would, I got involved in this 
association and was meeting all of my neighbors and I kept hearing everything that everybody wanted and I wanted the same thing. And then a Fresh Fields opened and a CVS opened. Check, check. I didn't have to open a grocery store or a pharmacy, uh, which would have been, I think, even harder. And then um, that left a hardware store. And so um, I said, I can open a hardware store. Why not? Amazing. And why Ace? Tell us how Ace works. Is it a franchise? How does it all flow? Yeah. So I'm glad you asked because a lot of people don't understand. uh, There are no hardware franchises in the United States. Um, There are co-ops and wholesalers. And so if you open a hardware store, you either join a co-op or you buy from a wholesaler or some combination of the two. And so I joined the Ace Hardware Cooperative. And so it's a purchasing co-op. If I didn't say this already, there's 5,000 of us nationally. And Ace's initial purpose uh, started in 1924 was to get better pricing for its retailers. And so it was just five guys that got together. It was all men at the time. They said, we think if we pool our money, we'll get better pricing from the vendors. That was even before big box stores. So fast forward to now, that's really how all of us compete with the big box stores and online competition. Ace goes to the vendors, really goes to that for us, Does the um, gets the pricing, the contracts, warehouses, the products, and then we buy it out of that warehouse. So we don't have to have, you know, massive locations with storage and, and all of that. So um, we're just we're just a member of the co-op. Yeah. And so tell me a little bit more about what that means. So what what benefits come from that? And do you have control over how you operate your stores? So yeah, yeah. So we have um, each each group. Um, so you know, I have thirteen, and, and it ranges from owners that have one store up to like one hundred and forty five, and we have one vote in the in the overall company for everything um, that needs to be voted on, and. Ace provides a bunch of wraparound services on top of the purchasing. So things like internet support, um, training, national marketing and advertising. You know, Home Depot, for example, um, spends tens of millions of dollars on television advertising. Uh, hundreds of millions of dollars, I think, at this point on television advertising. I could never do that. So I pull my marketing dollars. Ace pulled my marketing dollars with everyone else. And they put us on national ads. And so that's a big part of it, too, is that, that shared um, advertising. And then we have um, a certain amount of product that we are technically required to carry in our store because if you walked in as a consumer, you would expect us to have it. You would expect our electrical department to have X, Y, and Z and our plumbing department to have X, Y, and Z. Beyond that, we can shape the stores in any way we want. So there's a lot of fun things that happen. I have a friend in Texas that has a fudge shop in the middle of their hardware store. And they have a lady that comes in every day and she makes fudge. And it is amazing. Uh, So if you're in Houston, go see the Murphs at their hardware store. Um, I have a friend that sells horse feed and things for um, riders with saddles and bits and all of that stuff. Um, I have a friend that has a baby store in the middle of her hardware store. And so we can add all sorts of really cool niches depending based on what our community wants. Might be the interest of the owners. It might be a staff member that's taken on some sort of interest. So that's the really fun part. I mean, kind of like a five and dime in that regard with all of the core hardware stuff. Amazing. Amazing. And how do you compete with Home Depot, for example? Uh, that's a good question. I get up every morning with a little bit of a chip on my shoulder, like, oh my gosh, how are we going to win today? The big boxes and online retailers, yeah. right? So we sell um, a lot of things like candles and storage supplies and party supplies and pet supplies, things that you can get in a Target or a Walmart just as easily as you know buying online at Amazon or Chewy. And so uh, we rely heavily on the co-op to help us with our pricing. Uh, and we are very community focused. And so we do events 
a lot of events in our stores every year. Like if you are an online retailer, you're not hosting an event. If you are a Home Depot, you're probably not hosting something called Ladies' Night or a garden party. Um, and all of our vendors come together to help us with those kinds of events so that we have a chance to really get the community to understand how local we are and how much of a, a member of the, the Main Street we are. And so tell me a little bit more about the community focus and how you really support that community um, aspect, especially as you were you know, starting out and coming into a place where the community was rebuilding. Uh, you know, if you think about, I joke that we're the, you know, Howard Cunningham on, on Happy Days owned a hardware store and it was kind of the community hub. Um, people don't really think of urban areas as having those kinds of hubs, but each city is divided into smaller communities and each one of those communities kind of acts like the neighborhood in Happy Days. And so, especially when we opened that first store on Logan Circle and there were so many new people moving to this neighborhood, they made friends in the aisles of the hardware store. Literally, you could see it happen. It was the coolest thing ever. Um, and so we became that gathering place and we wanted to maintain that culture. And so as we became established here, people started coming in from other parts of the city saying, hey, our neighborhood needs a hardware store. Our neighborhood needs a hardware store. Um, and they didn't have to travel across town to get to ours now. They could have one in their own neighborhood. So we opened the second store two years later and then one a year for 10 years. And that growth was really cool because it was just people, customers like you walking in saying, I live in, in a neighborhood across town and we want to walk to get our hardware. We don't want to drive to get our hardware. And so we started really as that neighborhood hub. And then we opened a store that didn't work. And people had said to me, by people, I mean older, more established hardware store owners around the country had said, the bigger we got, the more likely we would be to have a store that failed. And I was like, oh, no way. Washington, D.C. supports us. We've got this. We had already started opening in Baltimore by that point. And we opened in the wrong neighborhood that wasn't ready for us. It was too new, I think. But we had a ladies' night. We decided we were going to throw our first big party. And we had over 300 women show up to this party. It was an enormous success. So despite the fact that the store didn't end up working, it made us really like to throw parties. And so from then on, we started throwing parties at all of our locations. And they've all been, they've grown every year. They've become more and more successful. Uh, we had one two weeks ago. It was one of the first I couldn't attend because I was out of the country. 375 people, thousands of dollars in sales. It was crazy how successful it was. So those are the kinds of things we do to compete get you in the door, make you love us, love you back, give you free stuff, give you discounts, show you how to use tools, um, yeah, introduce you to your neighbors, all the things you can't do when you shop online. I love that. I love it. And it's so obvious that you're passionate about this. So, and, you know, coming from software into, you know, actual real hardware, yeah. I'm sure you had to have lots of teachers along the way. Like, how did you, how did you grow your passion and your knowledge and expertise? So, um, Three things, I guess. One, I like to think I had lots of non-traditional teachers. We hired a lot of returning citizens, a lot of folks in recovery who have taught me, I think, how to be a better human being and a better leader. So those are all the soft skills. We have amazing vendors who, who would come into the store to sell us stuff. And I would say, you can't leave till you tell me how to use this. So like block the aisles. What are these nuts and bolts for? Why do I need all of these anchors? Um, and they were great. They didn't care that I had a million questions solidify their order of stupid questions because I probably ask a million. And then the third thing, and this is our, our secret tip, is that we get asked the same 20 questions or so over and over and over. So even with my new folks, I can say, 
if you master these questions, you will sound like you know what you're talking. And then you can figure out all of the other things around. You know, I tell our new hires and geek out about something because you might like the plant department and someone else might like the plumbing department. Get those 20 questions down pat. Then figure out what you want to geek out on. Then you will become the expert and everyone will seek you out because of that expertise. I love that. I think most businesses probably have that, you know, 20 basic questions or 50 questions that they're going to get asked and making that into an FAQ to provide training. I'm sure really help people. Is that something that ACE taught you or is that something that you just noted noted and started implementing within the um, company? We just started paying attention to what we were getting asked. And I remember that first year writing down the, the common questions. Um, you know, if you heard something a couple times a day, it just went on the list. And ACE, yeah. I think, has that list now, but at the time they didn't. And so it was useful when we brought new people on board. Um, it's scary. I mean, when you walk in, even our, our stores are about 8,000 square feet. That first one was only about 5,000 square feet. So not even that big, but 20,000 items and a whole bunch of services and, you know, customers coming in with lots of questions. And so we had to figure out how to boil it down to the least common denominator. One of my favorite, um, well, I shouldn't say it's my favorite story, but I had never used a power tool in my life. My dad never wanted me to use his tools. He, he thought it was, you know, it was, his, it was his hobby. Didn't want to share it with the kids. And I was the girl. And, you know, I'm using air quotes. I was the girl in Ohio. And so I didn't learn how to use those things. I was helping a customer one day who wanted to hang something. She'd bought a new condo and she did not understand what I was saying. Like I, I could, I, I'd read the directions. In theory, I could talk about using a drill. I walked her through all the steps, opening the chuck, inserting the drill bit, et cetera, and so on. And she was just looking at me like I had three heads. And so I was like, I'm going to show her how to do this. So I took a drill out of a box. I plugged it in opened the chuck, put in the drill bit, closed the chuck, and I drilled a hole right into the side of the wall at the hardware store. Carrie, I was so excited. I was like in my head, jumping up and down like a little girl, high-fiving everyone around me. But outside, I was like, oh, I've got this. I own a hardware store. That lady had no idea that I was 31 years old and I had never used a drill in my entire life. I was so full of baloney. Um, yeah, you fake it till you make it. Oh my gosh, that- I just bottled a lot. Such a great story. <laughs> Uh, yeah, everyone needs a hole in the side of their business. It was great. <laughs> oh my God, I love it. Well, sometimes you got to fake it till you make it, right? <laughs> exactly. I did. Yep. <laughs> All right. So let's talk a little bit about um, hiring convicts and people in recovery. Uh, so I think this is a really interesting aspect of your story. So can you share how you started down this path? Yeah. So when we hired our first teammates, it was still legal to ask someone if they had a felony background. And I think it's probably still legal in some states. It's been banned in the district, the whole movement to ban the box and the box is that felony box. And we we got the first application, I don't know, from a district agency or some service. And the felony box is the top. And, and I decided that, that I didn't like it. And so I waited it out. And uh, before I knew it, we had our first four or five applicants. And the first person we hired had been in prison for 17 years. But I didn't know that because I didn't ask him on the application. And he ended up working with us for 10 years. He never met a customer that didn't become a friend. He could talk your ear off. He was awesome. But had I asked him, one, I might not have hired him. I don't know. I mean, I like to think that I wouldn't have cared, but I might not have hired him. And I might have underestimated how great of a teammate he was going to be and what he would teach me about being a better leader. And so that kicked off this trajectory of us. My husband eventually said, you know, you can't judge everyone by the best or worst thing they've ever done. And so Tommy was that first teammate, made a huge impact on us that started this culture of just being open 
And then when he came to work, once we found out about it, he didn't have to hide it. It became part of his history, not something that he had to be ashamed of, which now, 20 years later, I'm the most proud of, I think, because I believe people should be able to bring their whole selves to work. And I think business owners say it, but they don't mean it. And the funniest conversation with an employee the other day, we spent time in the San Quentin prison. Um, and we were at the front of the store and I was listening to a podcast I like that happened to be recorded in San Quentin. He's like, oh, I lived there. What's like, what? what? <laughs> I lived there. But the fact that he did not care that he was telling me that, like, made my day. Like, that was what I took away from that story. Like, dude, that's cool. He just told me that part of his history, and he knew that it wouldn't be a big deal. So anyway, we banned the box. And then my second teammate came to us from a recovery clinic down the street. He was six weeks clean. He asked me for a job. I said, no, I don't need you. Legitimately didn't need any employees at the time. Um, but then I asked him to help me unload a truck. And he did that two weeks in a row. I still wouldn't give him a job. And one day he just came in and started working. Started putting product up on his shelves as if he owned the place. And I was like, all right, I guess I better make this legit. And so um, we are friends to this day. It's the funniest thing thinking about him just showing up and going to work. Um, and he, he worked with us for 11 months. Quit one day. He got very mad. He was very early in his recovery. He was very fragile. And, you know, I learned a lot more about this over the years. But he got mad and he left. He said, I never want to see you again. He went back to the recovery clinic and he started telling everybody there that they should go see the lady at the hardware store. She'll give you a job. So he didn't want to see me again. Somehow in this process, he realized that the store was maybe a safe haven or a stepping stone um, or a safe space. And so he sent somebody who sent somebody who sent somebody. And all of a sudden, I had this amazing team of people. Over half, you know, would leave and go to a meeting during the day for some sort of recovery program. Um, Never formalized it, never made it part of our process, never said to the managers, you have to hire this way, et cetera. And then in 2014, one of my teammates came to me and said, the community has nicknamed us Recovery Hardware. And it was probably one of the most meaningful days I ever had as a business owner. So we joked earlier about the software to hardware. I was going to call my book from software to hardware. Threw that out the window, boringest name ever. Uh, it became Recovery Hardware because we got this nickname that meant so much to us. I love it. As I was sharing with you, you know, before the show, um, I had addiction issues and um, and had to pull myself out of it. And coming to work for Stone Age absolutely saved my life because it gave me a sense of purpose and belonging and somebody investing in me. It gave me like an anchor, right? Yep. Which is what I so desperately needed. But I was so ashamed of my past. Like, there's no way that I would have talked about it. And then finally, one day, it was probably maybe two and a half years after I started, we had a team building exercise. I was with my management team and, uh, and I decided to share my story. We were getting vulnerable with each other. And I finally was like, I'm just going just gonna to tell everybody what happened. And it was amazing because then someone said, well, the story that I told, that actually isn't the hardest thing I've gone through. Oh. And then they shared something more vulnerable. And so everybody did. And my eyes were open to the power of vulnerability and what happens when you do show up as your whole self and you're not afraid to, to share your stories because we all have stories. We all have some sort of baggage that we're carrying yep. and, you know, have felt shame at some point in our life. And so if I could help other people feel less shame and feel more comfortable sharing their stories and showing up as their whole selves, not being judged by the worst thing that you've ever done in your life. Because let's face it, none of us really want to be judged for, you no. know, stupid decisions we made, um, no. you know, or make or will make in the future. 
that I could help them on their journey to not just being great employees, but more fulfilled human beings. Yeah. And so I really appreciate not just the fact that you're giving people who another chance where a lot of people wouldn't even consider it, um, but that you're removing that feeling of shame around the stories by allowing them to tell their stories, by being open about it and saying, it's okay, we've all made mistakes. So I just love, love, love what you're doing. Thank you. Thank you. I, I've always believed that human beings in general want some sort of purpose. And when that purpose gets sidelined by any kind of active substance use or anything, I mean, we, we, we lose our footing in so many different ways. And regardless of whether or not it's because of drugs or mental illness or abuse, anything in your past, people want to be grounded. And this is why people go back to prison so often, because if you don't have a job, I hired a gentleman on house arrest and, you know, I have lots of great aha moments or moments of empathy throughout my life, but he was wearing an ankle bracelet when I gave him a job because he was on house arrest. And he said, you know, I'm waiting for my court date, but that doesn't mean that my landlord says you don't have to pay the rent. You know, the phone company didn't call me and say, it's okay. You don't have to pay for your phone bill. Well, of course people end up committing a crime. This is the situation they find them in. And we would all do it. You know, we all think, oh, that was them because they had already been in prison once. We would all do it if we needed to feed our kids or pay our rent or make sure we weren't sleeping in the streets. We need a purpose yep. and a place to be. Yep. Yeah. Totally agree. Totally tangent. Oh, sorry. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Yep. It's good. Yeah. There's a great book if you haven't read it. Um, and I want to talk about your book, but it really, it, it, it opened my eyes to addiction and it helped me understand myself. I only read it a couple of years ago and I've done a lot of work understanding you know, why I got myself into the situation I got myself into, but it's called Chasing the Scream. I highly, highly recommend it. I think you will really appreciate it. Thank um, you. But it, the premise of the book talks about the war on drugs and how devastating that has been to not just the U.S., but the whole world. And it has this whole thread of, you know, why do we have such an addiction issue in this country, in, you know, in society? And it really helped me have a lot more self-compassion and also compassion for others. Uh, So anyway, I highly recommend everybody should read Chasing the Scream. It is one of the best. It's the only book I've ever read twice in my life. (laughs) Wow. Okay. Yeah, it's really good. So anyway, I think you'll appreciate it, especially with, you know, your vision and passion around helping people in recovery. And, you know, and let's face it, a lot of the reasons why people go to jail has something to do with substance abuse too. So there's so many correlations and, you know, we've got to figure out how to help them be able to reintegrate into society so that they can make a better life for themselves. But if nobody's willing to give them a chance, like John and Jerry, our founders of Stone Age, they didn't know my story at the time. They do now. But if they wouldn't have taken a risk and hired me, which it was a huge risk to hire me at 28 years old to be the general manager of their company, um, then I don't, I don't even know if I'd be here. Who knows, right? Yeah, that's a, I mean, that's a, and that's a very serious statement to to be able to think that and make it. um, Yeah. Substance abuse, I think, touches something like 60% of the population, either because you're actively using something or you are related to or living with or in love with somebody who is. And I'm always surprised when, you know, having these conversations where it's still something that's not talked about. When I do talk about my book, though, or I give a speech, 
usually one of the very first people that comes up to talk to me after is someone who wants to tell me how long they've been clean or sober. And yeah. I, I jump up and down. I mean, if there's just one thing that comes out of any of a conversation, that makes me the happiest that someone knows they can come up and say that. I share that same yeah. exact feeling when yeah. I share my story. I just did it last week. Awesome. I was down and I had like like six or seven people come up afterwards and, and they do. They want to talk about either themselves or a family member. And it's really powerful. And it's not just substance abuse. And I think, you know, that's the easiest place for people to go and, you know, that they feel like, oh, it's a, you know, a willpower thing. But there's gambling, there's shopping, there's the corn, there's food, yep. you know. There's over-exercising, like there's so many things that we do to numb ourselves yeah. or to get the, you know, the dopamine kick Yeah, uh, and that we don't, you know, we really stigmatize and shame around drugs, hard drugs, not so much around alcohol, even though alcohol is a significantly bigger issue. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, overeating and fat shaming people. But all those rests are a little bit easier to maybe hide, right. yep. but it's all feeding that same thing that we're looking for that artificial dopamine hit because we don't have some meaning and purpose in our lives to ground to, or we haven't dealt with past trauma or, you know, issues that are, that are really causing us to have low self-esteem and, you know, for me, like self-hatred. Right. Yeah. And most people that you interact with, have, if they haven't had a reason to think about it, or if perhaps the person that they knew you know, sometimes I'll meet folks who are still in act, like so, someone in their family is still in active use, and the, the it's still a very negative feeling yeah. towards that person, right? Like you haven't either come through it or realized the empathy that's required. I don't know. I mean, we could talk about this for hours, but um, being able to talk about it is yeah. Well, yeah, there's so much judgment, and when you feel that judgment, you don't want to. You know, you don't. You hide it, which doesn't help. No. Um, but that feeling. I mean, nobody likes being judged, but. People who are active in addiction or in recovery cannot help but feel judged because people do. They do. Yeah. All the time. Well, it's so again, and there's no, I'm not saying that there's any kind of, um, this does not equal that, but nobody thought I could run a hardware store in the very yeah. beginning. You know, the folks at Ace were like, no, you're in a city, you're a chick, you don't have any experience. There's no way you can run a hardware store. And so I think I started with a little bit of a chip on my shoulder and felt like an underdog and then ended up hiring folks who maybe never even had a first chance. So I don't like to think I'm giving anyone a second chance, but they were also considered an underdog. And so the, the playing field to me was level. I'm going to figure out how to do this and you're going to figure out how to do it with me. You know, we're going to walk together in this crazy journey and figure out how to sell hardware. And I often hear, you know, how do you trust that person? What are you thinking? The very first teammate who stole from us was college educated, his family owned a business, no addiction in his family, uh, really articulate. Like nobody looked at him and said, why the hell did you hire that guy? Why'd yeah. you hire him? And he stole thousands of dollars from us. So when someone says, you know, how did you hire someone with an ankle bracelet or had been in prison for 17 years? I say, let me tell you about AJ. Let me tell you about the kid who looked perfect on paper, who you never, ever would have questioned. What a beautiful, beautiful story. And do you share this in your book? Tell us a little bit about your book. Yeah. So people had said for years, hey, when are you going to write a book? And I was like, no one wants to read a book about starting a hardware business. Like to me, that wasn't interesting at all. The neighborhood is interesting for sure. And this, the first one, I mean, they're all interesting, but has a lot of history and Logan Circle does. But when we were told that we were nicknamed Recovery Hardware, it coincided with a teammate of mine who has since passed away, who said to me one day, you really should talk about us. And by us, he meant the folks on my team in recovery. 
And so I felt like at that point I had permission. You know, I, I didn't want to, I didn't want to be perceived as a gossip. I didn't want to tell, you know, Carrie's story or Carl's story or Scott's story because they're not my stories. Um, but I realized, and John, I feel like gave me permission that by talking about it, I made other business owners stop and think about what they were doing or not doing, or I made customers understand us a little bit better. And so all when all of that coincided, I was like, okay, I, I, I have a title for a book. Um, I feel like I've given, sort of gotten permission to write it. I mean, that was 2014. So it probably still took me six years to start it. Um, but then I basically just told the stories of lessons I've learned from the non-traditional teachers. So, you know, not giving up five minutes before the miracle, better to be respected versus liked. Um, I mean, I could, the whole litany, but almost each chapter is a person who has touched my life as a teacher and the lesson that they taught me. So. I love it. I cannot wait to read it. Oh, what a great book. I liked it. Yeah. And where can people find it? Uh, where are you selling it? Um, so I like to push people to independent bookstores. So if you go to IndieBound.org, you can order it from your local bookstore and then the local bookstore gets the credit. Um, I sell it on my website. So at RecoveryHardware.com and in some of my hardware stores, uh, you can order it from BarnesandNoble.com. Um, yeah. Great. I'll include all of those in the show notes. Thank you. I appreciate That's that. That's amazing. And now the last topic I'd like to cover is that you're also an ESOP. You just recently became an ESOP. For those of you who, do, who don't know, an ESOP is Employee Stock Ownership Program. It's a form of employee ownership. Um, it's what Stone Age is as well. So can you talk a little bit about what inspired you to sell your store network to your employees? Well, a couple of things. One, my husband, Mark, was my uh, full business partner prior to selling to the ESOP. We had not planned our succession. We didn't know what our exit strategy was going to be. And we had gotten to about 17 years of ownership and felt like we wanted to at least start talking about it. So there was that. Um, in 2020, 2021, if you remember, um, it, it became the year of the protests. And there were lots of, just, you know, negative, scary, whatever word we want to use, things happening in the United States. And it just so happens that a lot of the protests marched down the street in front of my office. We took that to heart. We wanted to figure out how we could be a solution for the things that people were marching about. Um, racial inequality, uh, pay inequality, generational wealth. I mean, all of those things. And we realized that the one thing that we could do as a teeny tiny little business owner, you know, one cog in this whole wheel, was to sell the business to the people who helped us build it. And we didn't know anything about ESOPs. We knew they existed. So we found Steve Storkin at the Employee Ownership Change Network. And we said, tell us everything you know. What is this thing called an ESOP? What do we need to do? How do we learn from you? Um, and that grew to us hiring a consultant and then getting our trustee and having the valuation. And um, you know how the whole process unfolds. But yeah, so in August of 2021, we made it official. We sold 30% to the team. Um, and we'll continue to sell the last 70% um, over the next several years. Fantastic. Yeah. And what has been the most interesting thing you've learned through going through this process? Oh my gosh, everything, right? It was kind of like starting the story and I didn't know a darn thing. Um, well, you know, employees don't pay anything. That's the very first question people ask. How does your team yeah. afford it or how did they afford it or, you know, how's it financed? And so that was probably the coolest thing for Mark and I to learn, like how the whole process works. Um, and then reading about the history. So there's still only about 6,000 ESOPs in the country. I still think that we're kind of unicorns because there aren't that many of us and there seems to be a growing movement, but it might be because people like you and I are in the movement now. So it might seem bigger than it really is. 
it was also interesting to learn how people would think about it. You know, it operates a lot like a qualified retirement plan. And so most folks, if they're young, for example, this can sound like I'm stereotyping and I apologize, don't really think about retirements. They're not thinking about a 401k yet. So they don't think about the ESOP how I do as a, as a true owner, because it's just some, something that'll happen when they're old. <laughs> yeah, I'm using air quotes around old. So I think for us, one, learning how the structure works, and then two, just experiencing the wide range of emotions and layers of understanding that our team had that we will probably forever have to be explaining. So yeah, for sure. that was, um, I, my glass is always like almost full to the top and I think everyone's going to think everything's amazing. And, you know, I had a couple not so positive comments about it and I was like, I never really thought about it from that angle. Yeah. But of course, I'm in my 50s and someone in their 20s is going to think about it differently than someone who's in their late 60s. And so we had, we have to educate the gamut. Yep. <clears throat> yeah, we stopped talking about it as a retirement benefit. We talk about it as an ownership structure. Yeah. This is how we don't sell to private equity. This is how we don't sell to a competitor. This is how we retain ownership as employees. And yes, how you maximize it is you stay with the company as long as you can, um, as long as you want to, and as long as you're adding value. And yes, maximizing it by rolling it into an IRA is the best way to yeah. go about it. But it's your money. And if you want to take the tax penalty by taking it early to buy a house or start a business or do whatever you want, it's yours. But yeah. real, true wealth is built over time. And I think a lot of people just think, oh, yeah, it's these quick hits. But nobody who owns right. a business ever does it just quickly, you know, no. right? I mean, you even see that. Like I was reading the Airbnb story and it seems like it's an overnight success. And those guys worked so hard for a decade. Yeah. To bring yeah. their idea to fruition, people just don't understand what goes into it. And so, you know, we help our employees understand that real value, a company that's going to last for a long time, is going to take the time to be able to become successful and grow successfully and grow profitably and be a healthy company. And that's what kind of ownership you get to participate in. So I think that really resonates with people more is that, you know, this, yes, yeah. yes, this is how you maximize it, but this is how you are an owner in this company because otherwise you wouldn't be. Yeah. And the impact that you make. I think the challenge that we have, particularly because the majority of our workforce are hourly wage employees yeah. and DC is so expensive. And so we need to figure out how to strike that balance between we want you to be here and feel that ownership, but we also want you to go somewhere else if you can earn more. And so, Yeah. That's that's what I grapple with a lot. Yeah. Yeah, we're working on and we're just starting this process. And so I don't know um, how possible it's going to be, but we're in our very niche kind of space. We're a very profitable company. And so the ESOP has a lot of value. Yeah. Uh, and what we don't want are people to feel like, ooh, you know, I've got um, half a million dollars in here or a million dollars sitting in my ESOP account. I want access to it. And so I have to leave the company too. Right. Um, be able to access that money. So how can we allow people to have some sort of access over time? And there are, from what I understand, ways to be able to go about doing that. We're not at that point yet, but I want to be thinking about those kinds of things. So that way I don't have people feel like that they have to leave the company to be able to access the money yeah, because they do have something that they want to do in their life. They want to pursue a dream. Uh, right. And we want to make sure that the ESOP can help them do that. So there's all different kinds of ways that we'll have to figure out as we continue to grow and mature in our ESOP of, of how do we retain people um, as the ESOP changes. Yeah, the, you know, there's so much, um, I, I do some anti-monopoly and antitrust advocacy work. There's so much roll-up happening, you know, especially yeah. now that there's so many people retiring and selling their businesses. 
um, as the baby boomers continue to age out. But ultimately, you want to maximize your return. And if it's easy to take all of those folks you have and have all of that money and sell to private equity because they immediately get paid, it's great for them. But to me, for the business landscape in the United States, it stakes, right? We don't, we don't need another ruined firm. And so, yeah, unlocking that value. It's a really good question to continue to ask yourself yep. because you, we don't want, I ultimately don't want that to be the end. But I yeah. do have some folks on my team who have said, if we build it enough and everyone can get bought out and make a lot of money, that's what we should do. But mm-hmm. yeah. Yep. I know. Yeah. Every ESOP is faced with that at some point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Good yeah, question. And it's a good problem to have. If we have yeah, to grapple really. with what to do with all of the value, then it's great. Yep. Yeah, we have a company based here in Colorado called New Belgium Brewing. Uh, yeah, and yeah, they were my inspiration. Yeah, yeah. Oh, they're amazing. And they just sold uh, to a bigger brewer, brewing company, um, an international brewing company. I think somebody out of the, out of Europe. Anyway, yeah. there were a lot of people in the ESOP community who were really disappointed in it, who said, oh, it failed. And yeah. I just chose to look at it so different. The business conditions changed enough that it's what made sense for them to be able to continue going forward. Beer margins are so, so small. And there is so much consolidation that's happening that if you're faced with like, hey, what's the best decision for the company? If it means that selling and becoming part of a bigger system is what's going to preserve the brand and preserve the jobs. And sometimes that's what you have to do. And those employee owners made a lot of money. A lot of money. Yeah. A lot of money. And they were taken very good care of through the whole process. And so to me, it was a success story. It did exactly what it was supposed to do. It was an ESOP that lasted a really long time that created really good wealth. But the best business decision was sell the company and they did it. And so I just chose to look at it so differently because it's not my place to come in there and judge the decisions that they felt like they had to make to continue to run a successful business. What I looked at it as is like, man, they created a lot of millionaires. Millionaires wouldn't be here. Yeah, mm-hmm. it wasn't just them walking away with all of this nope. money. It was the value for the team. My husband also likes to tell that story as a success story because we went to New Belgium. It's probably in 20, maybe 2017. And we had a yeah. tour guide and she was so excited to tell us that she was the owner. And we're like, what's going on here? You know, she's the uh-huh. tour guide. Nothing against okay. the tour guides, of course, but we just didn't know that we didn't know their structure at the time. And so the more we delved into it, the more we we're like, yeah. this might be something that we should consider. And so we followed their trajectory. But yeah, like public supermarket in Florida, right? There's all sorts of great case studies about millionaire cashiers. And um, I, want, I want a millionaire hardware store. Heck cashier. yeah. Yeah. My goal, my goal at Stone Age is to create a thousand millionaires. A thousand yeah. millionaires through awesome. ownership, right? I know. Yes. Like we said, that's a, yeah. it is. It's, it's, it's actually taking capitalism and doing good things with it. <laughs> exactly right. And all of those protesters that marched down the street, that's what they needed and wanted and were demanding. And that's yeah. what we want to give them. And so I hear you. Um, I hear you. Yeah. I hear you. Well, good for you. All right. One final question before we go. Uh, it's my signature question. So the name of this podcast is Reflect Forward. What does Reflect Forward mean to you? Uh, for me right now in this stage, because I am retiring in 20 days, it's two parts, right? So looking back for what I have done, but then also how am I going to take that into my next phase? Because I'm not retiring from work and life, just from the hardware business. And so what am I going to do next that I've learned in the last 20 years that has made me a better leader? I love that. I love it. And congratulations Thanks. on your impending retirement. It's so exciting. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, it's, it is. I'm excited about it. Yeah, that's amazing. 
Well, Gina, thank you so much for coming on the show today. This was such a beautiful conversation. I really appreciate your experience and just the kind heart and soul that you have. It, it, I know that even through audio, that's just going to just come across so clearly. So I thank really appreciate you. you. Well, I appreciated hearing your story. Keep telling it because people need to hear it. Um, and I really like your podcast. So thank you for doing it. Thank you. Thank you. All right, everyone, hang tight and I'll be right back. All right, everyone, I hope you enjoyed that interview. Please be sure to check out her book. What a great philosophy. What a great success story. And I'm so excited for her to head into retirement and see what comes next. With that, I will leave you for your day. I hope you have a great one. And if you like this podcast, please, please, please write a review, share it with a friend, subscribe to it. I always appreciate the support. You can go to my YouTube channel and subscribe there. And my book, The Ownership Mindset, is coming out in October. And I have opened up pre-sales. So if you are interested in buying a copy or multiple copies of The Ownership Mindset, please reach out or please go to Amazon or Barnes & Noble and search for The Ownership Mindset, Carrie Siggins, and you will find it. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much. Have a great day. We'll see you next week.